Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, everybody. I'm Dominic Cobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. Welcome to our webinar, It's Time to Stop Wasting Money on a Failed and Broken Approach to Defeating Financial Crime. Unfortunately, I haven't found that many people who agree with this proposition, so I hope you will indulge me as I try to make the case. I heard last week that US banks are spending $9 billion a year on fraud prevention, but still losing $40 billion a year to fraud. That's a negative return on investment of 450%. Yet somebody said to me, well, think how much worse it would be if banks were not doing anything at all. And others said to me, oh, the losses are baked into the operating model. Fraud is just part of the cost of being in the banking business. As my way of thinking, a return of minus 450% makes warfare, a very topical issue, look rational. Now, it's hard to get accurate, comprehensive and up-to-date information on what the global banking industry is actually spending on Know Your Client, anti-money laundering, countering the financing of terrorism and sanctions screening. But if the top 900 banks tracked by McKinsey are spending 3.1% of their revenue on financial crime compliance, as a refinitive survey found four years ago, banks are currently spending $178 billion a year on this problem. If the losses are three and a half times as big as the American experience suggests, they're losing more than $800 billion a year. That's probably an underestimate. After all, it doesn't even include the fines they pay for compliance failures or the spending on compliance in other industries, such as asset and wealth management and insurance, or the knock-on effects in terms of business not done, financial exclusion and exclusion of people and businesses from the world trade system. Not to mention the material and psychological cost to the many retail victims of criminal fraud and money laundering and the consequent reputational damage to the banks themselves when they refuse to make those retail customers whole. Only this week, a British newspaper published information leaked from a major global bank that it said showed that bank had harboured the hidden wealth of clients involved in torture, drug trafficking, money laundering, corruption and other serious crimes. Many of those allegations dated back decades. But as the bank rightly pointed out in response, it has more than kept pace with banking regulations designed to prevent exactly those sorts of things. The problem, in other words, is not that the bank is not compliant, it's that the regulations are quite useless as a method of dealing with financial crime. They may even, in my view, be making it worse. It's increasingly difficult to dispute that KYC, AML, CFT and sanction screening has become a massive but useless tax, not just on banks, on economic activity as a whole, without having any serious impact on financial crime. One close student of anti-money laundering has described it as possibly the least effective anti-crime measure anywhere ever. The United Nations Office of Drugs and Crime has estimated that just 0.2% of the proceeds of crime end up being seized. So why do banks continue to do something that palpably doesn't work? To my way of thinking, there are only two plausible answers. The first is that like arms manufacturers in a war, a large number of people are making a very good living out of an essentially destructive activity. In short, there is a compliance equivalent of the military industrial complex. And I can definitely see why chief compliance officers like the status quo. The work is not only well paid, but it's demonstrably necessary. I can also see why vendors of KYC, AML, CFT and sanction screening data and data services like it too. There are vast and growing budgets to them to tap. So a kind of groupthink in which the regulators and both the demand and supply sides of the compliance industry reinforce their belief that the existing approach to financial crime is valid. That groupthink is bound to take hold and changing such remunerative beliefs is, of course, intrinsically impossible. 
The second explanation I can think of is that the $178 billion being spent by those 900 banks is not in any serious sense a crime-fighting budget at all. It's an insurance policy against being accused of a compliance failure or even of being fined for suffering from one. In short, it's not a solution to crime or a cost of doing business. It's merely a box-ticking exercise, a metaphorical bung to the regulators that their demands are being taken seriously, a way of ensuring that they remain members of the groupthink. And why would regulators complain about that? They too can be claiming to be doing good work, and even better, to be doing it at the expense of shareholders, not the expense of taxpayers. So it makes sense for the regulators, as it does for the regulated, to be measuring activity, not outcomes, because outcomes are much sterner tests of whether or not you're doing a good job. Regulators can even fine banks, but not for actually laundering money, but for breaking money laundering rules. So it's not surprising that every country on earth supports the 40 FATF recommendations on AML and CFT. Who would want to advertise their country as a rule breaker? What I fail to understand is not why chief compliance officers and regulators like the status quo, but why chief risk officers and chief financial officers at major financial institutions think that squandering, I don't know, 20% of their total revenue on a failed and broken process is an acceptable price to pay for being in the banking business. Perhaps they see it as a useful barrier to competition that is well worth paying. But then what do I know? I'm just a cynical journalist. I may, of course, have all of this completely wrong. To put me right, I'm joined by four thinkers and experts in the field. Raisa Manning, our master, is head of regulatory affairs at ID Now, the identity verification as a service platform, which a wide variety of companies use to onboard clients as painlessly as the KYC, AML, CFT, and sanction rules will permit. Bertrand Fong is the founder of Secretarium, which has pioneered new combinations of hardware and cryptography to protect the privacy of sensitive data being processed or used in computations in the cloud, a capability now being applied incidentally to CBDCs. Rito Grunenfelder is an independent IT advisor with long experience of technological aspects of KYC, AML, CFT and sanctions, screening compliance in the banking industry. David Hannon is head of financial crime in the business solutions group at banking software vendor Temenos, where he specializes in financial crime detection and investigation in the banking and insurance industries. Now, in addition to our panelists, we do of course also have you, our audience, and the five of us encourage everybody uh, watching and listening to submit questions and comments throughout this webinar by using the Q&A or chat functionality on your Zoom screens. Rest assured, I won't be saving those up to the end, but I will answer them as we go along. So you can, if you wish, be an integral part of this discussion right from the outset. Now I'd like to begin our discussion proper by asking uh, two of our panelists whether they think I'm being too cynical. If I match, for example, the financial crime compliance uh, uh, costs named by Refinitiv, which was 1.28 trillion against what they estimated, the same organization Refinitiv estimated with the losses, it was 1.45 trillion. We're actually in a situation where uh, the costs of compliance are almost the same as the costs of, of financial crime. Uh, we seem to be recovering. There was that figure from the UN of 0.2%. Uh, other estimates range between 0.05% and 1.3% uh, of money being laundered is actually picked up by this vast apparatus uh, of compliance checks. And then there's this $26 billion uh, of fines, which, which banks have paid uh, for various compliance failures. There are lots of other costs we don't talk about, uh, like the collateral damage to world trade. Uh, look at the destruction, for example, of the, of the correspondent banking industry, 
uh, due to people not being willing to take the risk of being found on the wrong side of a financial crime compliance investigation. Uh, that excludes lots of perfectly legitimate people and perfectly legitimate businesses uh, from taking part in, in world trade. Then there's the erosion of privacy as millions of people get investigated. Hard to put a number on those, but it seems to me that this is an expensive, uh, useless uh, and intrusive activity. Am I being too cynical? Um, David, perhaps I could throw that at you first and then ask uh, Reyesa for her thoughts on it as well. Okay, well, I suppose the first answer to that is as somebody who sells solutions to stop those costs being so high, I don't think people are spending enough. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly the return, even, even at the best of the best performances, is not enough. Um, a lot of that is because um, whatever about the technological improvements that have been made by multiple vendors globally over the years, whatever about the power of cloud to reduce your own site costs of all of that, the process thinking is still the same. I mean, I use a perfect example of when people do their KYC assessment of somebody, if their risk assessment goes from medium to high, or if they just come in as high, they generate an alert, they investigate it, and larger banks have hundreds of people investigating those alerts, but there isn't a regulator in the world that demands that you report that. So those hundreds of people are straight away a waste of a waste of effort. They could be focused on the true and uh, more accurate um, uh, alerts or the, the ones that actually drive business value, such as fraud, where the money's being stolen. They can investigate that efficiently. They can do that efficiently. They can retrieve the money faster. Um, so from our perspective and from my experience is we look at the world the same way we've always done. And all we've done is apply technology to make everything we've done before faster at a higher price, as opposed to shifting the way we think. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. Am I right? We're spending hundreds of billions, probably trillions of dollars, and we're getting either a negative or very low return on it. Am I too cynical? Uh, you're partly right. Uh, yes, we are spending exorbitant amounts of money. Um, whether you're cynical or not, I think the question and answer is uh, is more complex than that, than that. And I think the discussion today will definitely get into the different aspects of it. As a KYC solution provider, uh, obviously I have um, the the statement to say, yes, you need to spend the money on it. It's important. Uh, Fraud is a very big problem. At the same time, I think listening to what you are introducing into the conversation, I think that there's also um, discussion and thoughts need to be put on cost benefit analysis. What are the obliged entities investing in? Do they understand what they're investing in? Is it only relying on the technology to solve the problem? Is this compliance just for compliance sake? Are they just trying to meet and tick the boxes, as you said earlier? So I think the more information that we have, the more communication that we have, an exchange of data on users, data on fraud, I think these obliged entities will be able to make smarter decisions and have a management process that involves technology, which is very important. Um, As we've seen over the last few years, digital services are not going away, they're increasing. So the solutions are here, the problems are not going away. I think maybe one way of looking at this topic is to understand how are we better managing the responsibilities with the tools that we have and how can we improve on that and make better 
management decisions of this customer process. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Alexis Nexus survey I read, it was a 2021 survey of the cost of compliance, said customary due diligence accounts for 60 uh, 66% was the figure they gave of compliance costs. And half of that was, was identity checks. And those identity checks alone account for 25% of total financial crime compliance costs. So it's actually proving very difficult to find out whether people are who they who they say they are. This is a major source of, of cost. You, David, mentioned a um, very high level of, of false positives. So whatever data people are feeding into their machines uh, isn't clearly isn't of, of requisite quality. And then on top of that, you have all the costs of putting it right. So if you have a false positive um, or your identity data is inaccurate, you then have to fix it. You have to remediate it. And LexisNexis says each remediation they do costs another 20 hours of somebody's time. So my question is, and maybe, maybe Rita, you have some thoughts on this. Um, is this a question, and we'll come back to the identity thing, and I'd love to hear what you have to say about this, Rita, but are we talking here really about data quality? All these data vendors supplying data to software providers and, and, and other service providers who are trying to help banks manage this problem efficiently. Is, is the data the problem? And if it is, should we be thinking about a completely different approach to this? Rito. If, if I take it from my experience, which goes back more than 30 years, data are the core of the issue. Let me give you an example. Call a bank and tell the bank we might, you might have an issue with XYZ, which is a one of your customers. And look how long it takes the bank to identify how many different products this XYZ has. How often these data over various data vendors are residing in the bank. These are all costs which are even not put in all the KYC. AML stuff, etc. So data quality is definitely a big, big, big issue. And the issue is even increasing when uh, banks now also go towards the cloudification with data lakes, etc., with unstructured data, etc. So to my experience, data are a big issue and there's a lot of rubbish data around which you do not know that they are rubbish data. So they have first to be identified as rubbish data. We've had a comment already from a member of the audience. Richard Parler says the key issue is the policy move from follow the money to boil the ocean. It's ineffective, inefficient, and misguided. Now, Bertrand, you may you may have some thoughts on this. You, you've heard what Rito said about, about the problems with data, but there are probably also problems with, with systems uh, and with processes as well. These are probably incomplete. They're probably siloed. And yet you've got, as Richard Parler says, you've got regulators saying, well, actually, it isn't good enough just to try and follow the money. You've now got to pick up these potential criminals in advance and, you know, be preemptive and proactive. And, and so people are just being overwhelmed with an impossible task, I think is what Richard is saying. What, what part do you think these legacy systems, data sets, processes play, Bertrand, in the... I think it's, 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 very, it's very important. So I've been talking from software engineer background, not a compliance officer. Um, we've been working with many banks on, on uh, KYC data quality uh, since 2018. And they, they all have this, this big problem with uh, different jurisdictions, different data stored by different of their entities. Most of the banks to their international banks 
So you are talking to one bank, but you are talking to uh, dozens of different sub-entities that each of them have to have their own system and spend the cost to keep this system uh, uh, up to date all the time. And they can't actually, they can't um, share the cost of that because everything has to be siloed in, in different jurisdictions. So it's, it's a big investment from them to uh, actually uh, improve all of these systems all over the world. Um, and it's, it's very difficult. One of the uh, very interesting parts uh, and very interesting approach that the banks have had uh, with our technology is that uh, they've decided to benchmark the quality of that data by, um, in a fully anonymous way and fully uh, encrypted way, uh, just checking with their competitors, uh, either sub-entities or, or, or large, large competitors, if they had the same data on different customers. And you know, out of this, uh, out of the report they would get, they would know that how many banks would have the same data as themselves. And it would give them a little bit of idea of the quality of their own system and, and give them you know, the needle in the haystack where the uh, uh, potential issues uh, they have. Some of them found out of that, that they had some process issues uh, that some of their, uh, some of the way they were treating some um, codes uh, were actually inaccurate and ending up in having completely wrong uh, data set in their, in, their, in their databases. So it's helped them a bit, but uh, yeah, the challenge is big, absolutely. And are you, are you, just to be clear, Bertrand, are you saying that it would make sense for banks to start sharing data, including data about financial criminals? Yes, absolutely, but they can't do it. Uh, Why not? Uh, I, is, is it a political decision not to do that, or is it technical? It's a regulatory issue. You, you, As a bank, you cannot disclose who your customers are. Therefore, you cannot share the data with other banks because you, know, you will instantly uh, disclose that information. On top of that, um, some individuals, I know under the regulatory laws like GDPR or CCPA in California, you cannot share names uh, like, like that, you need to have that consent. So it's make that extremely complicated. Okay. And this is why there is a big wave of privacy enhancing technologies coming up that actually allows to do that in a fully encrypted way. Uh, and therefore the information itself is not, uh, is not shared, but only insight on the information is shared. And that's actually very, uh, um, well, hopefully um, going to change how, how it's being worked. Okay, now, Reza, this, this sounds crazy. We've got GDPR contradicting FATF and, and the anti-money laundering director. These regulations are pointing in different directions. I mean, is it is it realistic to think of banks of starting to share data? Is, 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 is Bertrand right that that's kind of an impossible idea? You were nodding is what I was, was, what I was picking up. No, I well, I was, <laughs> yes, it's a good point. What I was going to add to um, Bertrand's comment was, yes, you're right. It's also the quality of the data, but also um, these fraudsters are quite aware of the different systems across borders and they take advantage of this. And so um, quality of the data and knowing that there are fragmentation and differences across how even suspicious activity reports are handled and the frameworks and templates for that all add to this burden and this problem. Um, and yes, GDPR and privacy um, issues are important to consider, but the GDPR also does have flexibility and is intended, uh, especially in cases for anti-money laundering, to be able to collect data and collect that data for the purposes of risk management. So there, there are, there's a lot that needs to be addressed. 
Um, we do have regulations and frameworks that are being drafted at the EU level, um, at national levels that are being worked on. So it, it's, it's sort of like an ecosystem that has different gears. And when the gears finally get together and there's more streamlining and symmetry, I think um, some of these issues definitely will be addressed. Mm -hmm. and, and this is what the fraudsters uh, can take advantage of because they know the weaknesses. Mm -hmm. David, help me here. I, I, I'm hearing that, that here we are, banks are spending trillions of, of dollars on, on, this, on this problem. Uh, they're not solving it clearly. The data is, is inadequate in quality. Their systems are out of date. They're not prepared to share it. GDPR prevents them sharing it, even if they were prepared to share it. Something else I, I, I'd like to throw into the mix, I'm sure you've got a view on this, is that one of the other things they said in that, um, in that LexisNexis survey I pointed out about the 66% of false positives was that 70% of financial crime compliance costs are actually people. It's compliance officers. It's this long payroll doing all this useless work as far as I can make out or ineffective work should we say so you're a you're a you're a technology vendor tell us from your experience um, how large this problem is of legacy systems legacy processes and throwing people at problems rather than trying to think the problem through from a different perspective yeah. well first off uh, um, I'd like to say that the there is a difference of opinion about GDPR, data privacy, in this regard, right? There's a specific FATF recommendation, I think it's 11 or 12 off the top of my head, I can't remember which one specifically, that outlaws all signatories to FATF from having data privacy laws that get in the way of anti-money laundering and terrorist financing. So um, GDPR is a, is, a, is a lower quality regulation than those of AML and CTF from that regard. Um, and that's why people keep it in different systems. They don't keep it in the core systems, which generates right. a secondary silo. GDPR is a law, though, and, and, and the FATF recommendations are kind of just recommendations, aren't they? So, yes, but they're um, transposed into law. <laughs> they're transposed into law in the EU, money laundering directives and so forth. So um, as signatories to that, each of the FIUs has to, has to, to defend the FATF recommendations. Um, so it's, as I said, it's open to interpretation. Our view on that is, and a, and a progressive conversation with the regulator would, from, from any of my clients' experience would say the same thing. Sorry, if you're a terrorist, you don't have a right to be forgotten. Forget about it. <laughs> That's the only thing you do forget to forget about, right? But in, in, in terms of coming back to your, your, your primary question, in terms of the efficiency, um, as I said, the people often measure uh, false positives, for example, as a percentage of the raised alerts, and that has no effectiveness measurement in terms of the overall volume of payments. I mean, 10% of nothing is still nothing. 90% uh, <laughs> of a lot is still a lot, okay? Um, and, and then we see false positive rates, say for sanction screening, which is the, the really measurable cost. They should be 2% or less. And certainly when, from, from our experience of implementations of our solutions, that's what our customers expect to get. Um, and if you, you use those examples uh, earlier talking about the, the huge numbers of people in large banks, there's thousands of people involved. Um, well, like according to Dow Jones, uh, in a tier one bank, 95 hits a day, okay? That's not even per 95 payments a day. 95 false hits a day is an FTE. So realistically, if you're moving from the five to 7% surveys down to, uh, down to 2%, you're gonna save four or 5,000 investigators just doing that okay so that i mean there's your payroll at an fde cost of 150,000 us dollars a head okay there's your money being wasted they're not necessarily always 
looking for the right ways to, to make the systems more efficient. They look to auto-evaluate false positives um, using old-style AI. This industry has been using AI for 20, 30 years. They just, it's, it's not called big data anymore. It's not called predictive modeling anymore. It's just called AI. <laughs> but it's still the same, the same underlying mechanisms that have all been used in different ways. Now, um, Richard Pahl has referred us to an EU task force report on improving uh, AML effectiveness. Um, he also points out one of our leading banks has more people looking at false positives than there are officers at the City of London Police or Europol. Uh, he thinks we should train them on investigations, uh, amend the algorithm, start setting um, OKRs as well as KPIs. I'm not sure what an OKR is, but um, I'm sure one of you might know. Um, so. Uh, it's an ob objectives and key results. So actually, yeah, outcome-based um, approach to to doing this. Um, uh, Rito, perhaps you could you could um, help us. You've heard what 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 David had to say. You've heard what Arias had to say. Your what do you think is going on inside these financial institutions, which leads to this these um, this process, this triumph of process over outcome? Are they kind of gold placing compliance in order to 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 um, reporting these suspicious transactions seems to be a very clear example of that where anything that looks even remotely suspicious gets gets reported and so they're completely overwhelmed by the volume that they're seeing and they're not actually shifting through the data in a very intelligent way to satisfy Richard Parler's OKRs. Um, I mean I mean from this point of view the problem is in fact still the same as 50 years ago we have to identify who does wrong that's huh? still the same Okay. However, when, when we look in a bank, how many applications does a bank run? The answer can be 250, the answer can be 5,000. I just give you a span of different banks. So in many of these applications are data of customers. And these, these data have in the end of the day to be checked. So mm -hmm. how efficient can this be done? These are many different systems, 3,000 vendor systems. Up to 3,000 vendors are in a bank. So now you can take out maybe 80% and 20% of the vendors have in the end of the day something to do with the accuracy of the data and all. So when we talk about all this, we talk about one layer, which is the visible layer, but underneath is so many things. And that's the reason why it becomes so difficult. So in the end of the day, the, the name of the game is automation, automation, automation. And then the cost comes down and the efficiency goes up. But they're spending so much money on, on box-ticking compliance, they don't have any money left to, to rebuild their systems. Bertrand made this point that actually you, know, you could do this a lot better, but there's no money to do it because it's all being wasted on this useless process. Am I being too cynical? If they just stopped doing financial crime compliance for a year and spent the money on reordering their systems, would we get a better outcome? It's an impossible question to answer. I appreciate that. No, I, well, not from an anti preventing a financial crime perspective. No, of course not. You know, you, that's like just opening the keys to the safe and leaving it at the front door and saying, take the cash. <laughs> you know? It has to be done. Okay, it's always going to be a game. Uh, of Tom and Jerry, and there's always going to be degrees of some people are smarter than the prevention systems. But if you open the floodgates, is it going to get worse? Yes, because every opportunist to be out there doing it. Mm -hmm. 
So if we talk a little bit about the, the, the obstacles that prevent a change here, we've already discussed legacy systems, legacy processes, difficulties of, of collaboration, data quality, and so on. But what about the interests that are actually at work inside these, these organizations? I might put this to you, Ray, so just very crudely. Um, is everybody too busy complying to, to, to think innovatively, to innovate in this area? That's a good point. Um, yes, there is a lot of pressure to comply and to get it right um, and to also have the best user experience, right, um, to reduce costs. So there's so many factors involved in how you want to get it right. Um, what was the first part of the question again? Well, I'm, I'm, the question I'm really asking you is, and I think you've answered this, is that, is that people are, are under pressure. They're spending so much time um, trying to avoid getting fined by the regulators and making sure they tick every box. They don't have time to actually think about how could we do this differently. Richard Parler's point here, objectives and key results. He says they're what lie behind the growth of the major US data companies. It's a great methodology, not in widespread use yet, and certainly not in the financial crime area. In other words, if we switched away from process, which is where all the effort and money seems to be being spent towards the outcome, something I said at, at, the, at the beginning. And what is the outcome we're seeking to defeat financial crime? It's manifestly not working. So how do you, given that you can't, as David said, simply give up for a year and, and reinvent yourself, somehow you've got to, in parallel, change the method you're using. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to ask you, I suppose, whether you think there is a methodology here to change the you know, while the airplane's in flight, you know, repair the engine and switch yeah. to a more outcome-based process. I'm sure Bertrand has a view on this too, but Racy, you may have something to say on that. Well, I mean, from our perspective um, as a solution provider, our mission is to make this whole connected world safer. Um, so for us, we have one objective and it's to help those obliged entities meet that need. We're one part of the solution when we're one part of the system. But if you're going to be flying that airplane, you have to know how to fly it. At the same time, you're doing it as it's as you're building it. It's very there's a lot of pressure and it's very complicated. So it's it's paramount that these entities understand what is the technology be, being used for? Am I investing it in the KYC process? Is it more important for my bank to be investing it in the monitoring and screening? And how am I getting the best out of this? You can't just rely on the technology alone. It still needs people, training, staff. There's a whole process that goes with it. And I think um, part of the mistake is to just tick the boxes and say, well, we have this AI and machine learning. It's used for... Um, helping us tack, uh, track the false positives. And then all of a sudden, all you're doing is coming up with false positives. And then that weakens your suspicious activity reports. So that defeats the purpose. So there has to be a smarter way of understanding what you're investing in, understanding where the technology is going to be used and how you integrate it with the rest of the whole staff, the banking system, the whole process. And, and it's going to be different for different banks. There are banks that work across different countries. There are smaller banks. There are fintechs. And one size solution doesn't fit all. Mm -hmm. um, is, is it, Bertrand, is there, is there a magic bullet here where banks could, could look at their existing data sets and data flows and data sources and look at their existing systems and just do it better without necessarily having to vastly inflate their budget or completely reinvent the bank. 
and as races as the banks of lots of different sizes with lots of different budgets. But let's just stick to I don't know the nine hundred biggest global international banks. Is there a magic technical technological bullet here which could? I don't think so. That's that's very unfortunate. I don't think there is any uh, magic bullet for for the bank. It's it's a very tough system uh, to uh, to to improve. And one thing back on what uh, Raya just said uh, and Rito said earlier. What's very interesting at the moment is to see the, the fintechs, to see the crypto exchanges that are facing also like rising compliance cost. And looking at their strategy, they want to automate the full process as much as possible because they've got different business models, they've got different margins, so they can't actually keep these costs growing. And um, so they're looking at that from fully automated perspective, um, user identification. And it's extremely complicated. If you look at the, for example, machine learning AI uh, for passport detection, uh, there's three big technologies around the world that provide their solution for all the KYC, uh, all the KYC providers. And um, I was talking with a regulation with a regulation uh, officer uh, two days ago. Two days ago, and he was presenting me a fake ID. Was looking very good, but the font was wrong. And you know, instead of having the uh, the British background, it was a unicorn. It was, and his passport had passed all of the AI-driven automated process of all of these uh, all of these all of these uh, crypto exchanges. So, um, yes, everything has to be automated, but there is no such thing as a magic solution because the, the each small steps of this of this KYC process of these waterfalls processes. Are, are themselves very complicated, each of them, and it will take time. It's not just for the banks, but for everybody that is that is working with a, a digital identity to improve the system to uh, to reach a point of, of high quality. So, unfortunately, uh, no, uh, that's the way it is. Well, I'm glad you brought up the question of of cryptocurrency exchanges, as I was thinking in in preparing for today about cryptocurrencies and and non-fungible tokens in particular, I'd sort of assumed non-fungible tokens have just become um, a sort of money laundering machine because all you needed to do was do a squiggle and put it in a PDF and you could sell it to all your people who wanted to launder money. But then I I read this this report which um, Chainalysis put out, I think it was last week, um, pointing out that that although the value of, of financial crime in the cryptocurrency sector has increased, it's not insignificant. I think it was like fifteen billion dollars. As a proportion of total activity in the market, has actually never been lower. And I, there were a couple of, of instances of this. Um, you know, the two individuals were arrested for that Bitfinex hack back in twenty sixteen. Um, and I, I read something this morning um, about the individual who who stole um, nine billion dollars um, from the Dow also back in 2016, has also now been identified. So as you say, Bertrand, they are increasingly aware of their, in that sector, of their compliance responsibilities and they're spending more money on it. But they seem to be getting better at it as well. So um, I don't know. I would have asked you the question, you know, has cryptocurrencies and NFTs actually made money laundering worse? I'm wondering whether we might actually learn something from them. What do you think, David? Uh Okay, maybe I'm getting old and cynical. <laughs> you can't but be more the, cynical than me, I can assure you. <laughs> well, I, I'm not so sure about that, those who know me. Uh, <laughs> the, if they're to be regulated institutions, if cryptocurrencies are allowed to be traded, they have to have the same regulatory oversight as any other financial intermediary 
um, processing money. Because crypto, whether you agree whether it's a currency or not, I don't. I believe it's like betting on a horse in the, in the starting blocks, knowing it's never leaving the trap. And you're going to sell it again because it's not actually something that 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 moves like cash. Um, but it but as something as a holder of it in any shape or form, as a as a mover of it, you have to have the same um, same controls um, as regular financial payments. I don't see any other alternative to that. My, my point is here, and this is the point I think which Chainalysis is making, is that is that blockchain technology is actually more transparent. Than the traditional financial system you can actually find people this is ironic but bitcoin in particular but but you can find people more easily um in crypto and nfts than you can in the traditional financial system well certainly than in cash yeah because they yes they they know not what they know they not know and there's usually an audit log lurking around the world somewhere yes um but it, it has to have the same oversight same controls um, because otherwise it's, 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 it's just systemically dangerous to, to the world. You wouldn't have to be worried about how much is stolen because it mm-hmm. could just evaporate because somebody pulls the wrong set of plugs. Mm-hmm. Agree, yeah. I think you're right with the blockchain, but also if you don't have, um, if you don't KYC the wallet holder and it gets transferred anonymously, then there was no purpose uh, in, in, you know, then the fraud is, it's too late. So I think we do have to um, consider this as an equal opportunity for such regulations to, to protect, um, you know, people who really are legally holding an NFT and wanting to trade it uh, properly or, you know, exchange it. It's such a nascent new area of technology, but the crime or the uh, the traditional art crime and money laundering is an old application, and to use it in this new digital world, um, it's it's open and ripe for um, for taking advantage of. Absolutely, so there should be um, a regulatory framework around that, and uh, KYC is a good place to start. Mm-hmm. And, and I think basically there's, there's something like I see it in so many organizations over the years. People do a, a comprehensive, or they think it's a comprehensive KYC during onboarding. And that's not the same approach they take thereafter. So they're duplicating or triplicating or replicating work again and again and again, which not only costs money, but also upsets customers. Mm-hmm. Can we think a little bit about what might an, an alternative approach to this problem might be. If we just set aside questions of budget and timing and the difficulty of changing the engine in mid-flight and so on. Now, Ray, so your organization is called ID Now. Um, we've never made any secret at Future of Finance. We think digital identities could be the solution here, partly because they put the, the onus on the, on the consumer, the onus on the corporation to prove who they are. And if you can't prove who you are satisfactorily, you're cut out of the system. Uh, I'm sure, Bertrand, you have some thoughts on this, but, but Ray, so tell us, um, am I switching from cynic to sort of um, undue uh, optimist um, uh, by thinking that digital identities are the, are the answer? I was trying to think of the name of the character in Condide, the French novel, which Bertrand will remind us of in a minute. Uh, Pangloss, so Panglo- am, I being, am I switching from cynic to Pangloss by saying that digital identities are the answer? That's a very good question. Um, it hasn't fully evolved. If we're talking, for example, about the EIDAS draft regulation that has put out this initiative um, 
last year that there should be a digital identity available for all Europeans that can be stored in a digital wallet. Um, this, is, this is an incredible move towards harmonization um, and, and moving in, in a great direction, but there are so many moving parts to this. Um, ultimately, we have to deal again with data privacy, with security. We, we need the European Commission to come up with a technical framework. So it's all still quite evolving, but definitely it's going to be a game changer in this whole ecosystem, for sure. Risa, I'd, li I'd like your thoughts on this, but before you give them to us, um, Bertrand, what is your view on, on digital identity? Is my preference for putting the onus on the, on the user of the financial system to prove who they are one which is likely to get traction? Is it a good idea or not? I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good idea. And on individ for individuals, but also for uh, legal entities. And if you look at a very big initiative from GLIFE, you know, the, um, the Swiss-based Legal Entity Foundation, um, about two years ago, they started to issue um, digital certificates uh, and uh, with uh, the legal entity identifier in there so that um, a company could uh, issue a digital signature uh, that embeds uh, their, their legal entity uh, identifier from life. And that's very powerful when it comes to doing KYC because you can authenticate yourself with digital signature the same way you would do um, with a wallet if you were to exchange uh, uh, pay with, with a digital currency. So um, not only it's coming uh, from the uh, cryptocurrency system uh, and ecosystem, sorry, but it's also there as well for the you know um, for the investors, for the for the legal entities, uh, for the banking system, really to be used. Um, one unfortunate thing is like we've been working with Life for years, and uh, as of today, we have not seen a lot of traction from this really disrupting feature they've, they've released a, a few years ago. It is coming, I guess. Yeah. Rito, it's clear to me that, that banks or indeed asset managers, either wealth managers, are not convinced that digital identity is, is part of the solution to this problem. What do you think that, does that tell us that the solution is wrong or that the banks don't believe in it or what? I think when we talk about digital identities today, then we think primarily in a context, we can replace the passport by something which is digital and do it like a cryptocurrency exchange is doing KuCoin or Binance or Kraken or whatever. Um, when I look at them, they still have a lot of deficiencies, can all be solved, of course. But when we look at the privacy aspect and I talk to the banks, I doubt this is a solution by tomorrow. In the long term, it will be one. But I'll give you an example. Um, if in my digital ID is written, I am a passport holder or a citizen of this and this country, and I'm at the same time also a U.S. citizen, so also taxable in the U.S., then my country and the U.S. have to have an agreement that this digital ID has to work in both countries, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I think it's an organizational issue which still needs a lot of really proper work in order to, to introduce it in a viable system. Mm -hmm. But um, as, as Reyes has pointed out, there's no regulatory objection here. You know, the European Union's got this 
standard schema out there. The UK government's published a digital identity framework. FATF, you know, the authors of these 40 recommendations have published a paper on digital identities and said, if you follow this, these attributes and this pattern, you will satisfy whatever recommendation 11A or whatever it was you were referring to this, David, you know, which obliges you to identify the beneficial owner of a, of a financial transaction. So the regulators are kind of signaling that they would, they would approve this but i think you're right to say that the, the banks are not enthusiastic about this and is that i wonder if that's just a question of understanding do they understand what we mean by a term like self-sovereign identity or not Marisa, do we is understanding a problem definitely understanding is an is an issue um like the other guests have mentioned uh there are the legal aspects there are the technical framework aspects, the security aspects, um, the interoperability of this whole wallet, the relying parties. Will they be the banks who are the wallet issuers or will they use um, a wallet that's issued by someone else? Uh, what about the liability? What about the other, the, the whole idea of um, a self-sovereign identity? Um, how sovereign will it be? Um, yes, I can choose whether I want to show you what my age is or whether I need to show you more information to open up a bank account or to do my taxes online or some other service. So there are a lot of um, definitions of what self-sovereign identity is, how self-sovereign will it be? Uh, these are all things that are yet to be decided. Yeah. David, you're not in your in your conversations with banks, they're not volunteering that they're interested in digital identity as, a, as an alternative. Is it part of your strategic thinking at all at Temenos? Uh, well, we, well, so we don't sell data. We sell systems that talk to data and process data. Mm -hmm. So we would talk to someone like ID now, etc. Um, but for me, from a from our financial crime offering, we expect that data has been verified before we ever see the customer. They shouldn't become a customer, so they're not really relevant to me. I will then score them for money laundering and terrorist financing. Um, uh, but I, I kind of alluded it to her earlier, is people waste money investigating that outcome, as opposed to actually then using that outcome, accurately or not, in a timely manner to actually monitor financial activities. So basically, you, you, in your risk-based approach, you should say, if it's imperfect information, you're high risk and everything becomes suspicious, okay? But fo focus on the money, not on the actual, uh, at the, not, not the full identification of somebody. Because they, 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 they won't necessarily, there is no such thing, in, for the most part, as, as a money laundering defined customer, apart from a few sanctioned ones. It's what they do is, is, is the problem. It's not the person, it's what they do, apart from the sanctioned entities. But... Just, be, just because they happen to come from a high-risk jurisdiction and work in a gambling business and they're a cashier in a gambling business doesn't mean that anything they do is money laundering in, in, their, in their current account, for example. Mm -hmm. Now, clearly financial institutions of all types, so we've talked about data more than once as being part of the problem here, but every financial institution is under pressure now. Banks, obviously, from open banking, which is taking off around the world, that's morphing into open finance. It will eventually morph into, into open data. So firms, if you're in the, in the regulated financial services business, you're going to have to improve your grip on your data anyway. Now, is, is it part of the thinking of, um, of, of, I don't know, chief compliance officers 
or more importantly, perhaps chief technology officers, chief information security officers, um, maybe chief risk officers, or even chief executive officers of banks thinking, well, actually one of the benefits of cleaning up and getting a better grip on our data might be a much cheaper, more effective, better outcome financial crime compliance process. Rito, do you have those conversations with, with banks? Uh, it happens, these kind of conversations quite often, but uh, frankly and honestly, um, the question is, what, what is the benefit? Or if you want to change your data landscape, then David can certainly talk about much more than I. Changing the core banking system is just one. This is already three years, at least. And changing the entire data landscape. I can just give you an example. I was involved in the project for seven years to clean up the entire data landscape of the bank. Seven years. Uh-huh. That's, yeah, that's enough time for a famine or a, or a plague so, of rocks, isn't it? Yeah, so Bertrand... That's enough. Yeah, Bertrand, is there a... Is there, um, <laughs> Is there a magic bullet here? Is there, the, is there a technique for banks to get on top of their data which doesn't cost the earth and a byproduct of which might be a better handle on identifying financial criminals that are trying to make use of the services of the bank? Maybe. Um, if you put yourself in the shoes of a, of a big bank that has hundreds of thousands of, of, of customers, sometimes millions, uh, they know they've got wrong data, they know they've got anomalies, and they know that uh, regulation changes, uh, a passport expires, people move address and so on. So it's a constantly, uh, it's a constantly uh, changing uh, data set they have. And finding the anomalies, finding the needle in the haystack is extremely costly. That's why they've got so many, um, so many people working on that. Uh, banks at the highest level, uh, are looking for cost reduction. And this has been uh, for years, uh, one of the, uh, of the department that where they want to, to cut the cost. So they've been, uh, we've been talking to like top management of the largest European banks and American banks, and they were all willing to really invest on something that could allow them to reduce the cost. Uh, definitely uh, to answer your question. And yes, there is, there is some uh, magic bullets is, is cooperation between the banks, uh, sharing, sharing the data as we were uh, talking about uh, earlier in this, in this conversation. Uh, the banks, you know, if they all work on their own, uh, they will never be able to find uh, um, complex money laundering patterns and so on. So data has to be shared. Uh, across borders, across jurisdiction. And this is very complicated, both for regulatory reasons, privacy reasons, uh, data sensitivity uh, reasons as well. Mm-hmm. Hopefully new technology can uh, allow them to bypass that, but it's, it's really new. The, our technology, for example, at Secretum, is only possible since 2016 when a new generation of hardware was released. So you know, even, even the banks that have been looking at it since 2018, just Two years after it was made possible, it was already extremely early. And we don't see that actually happening at scale uh, before maybe two to three years. But we are definitely going to the right direction. Uh, Sebastian Grevery has made an interesting observation here. He says machine readable regulation is a critical step to ensure enforcement is not too variable and subjective. 
Crypto-based systems are probably a good development for programmable value exchange with embedded regulatory enforcement. Uh, so I guess he's talking there about uh, a reg tech solution here that the regulators become part of a data exchange system. Once the notorious technological debts can be written off in some way, uh, it'll be expensive, I think is what he's saying there. So banks should rethink their core retail systems with legal and regulatory compliance at the core, consumer-friendly products at a peripheral level with new cloud API-based business and stack and tech stacks. So at one level, you, you, you could, as a retail bank, say, well, let's move over to blockchain and let's put the regulator on the chain with us and they can see what's going on and that'll lower the costs. At another level, you could do something quite conventional. You could move to the cloud, um, have API-driven data exchanges. Um, but what he's really saying is that is that banks do need to start thinking about what would be a virtuous circle here, I suppose. So you invest in data technology, better processes, you cut the cost of financial crime compliance, and you get better outcomes. Um, I mean, is that solution actually available? David, I'm sure you would say yes. <laughs> uh, that, That's what, what we about, do at Terminus. <laughs> okay. What about what about Sebastian's you know, cloud API, blockchain? Yeah, that's these what we do in Terminus. We were, we were the first um, banking core banking vendor in the market back in 2011 to put it finan regulated financial institutions in the cloud we've mm -hmm. got over 700 institutions globally up on our cloud service so that's doable that's there that's there now that's available um and and banks are we've seen a rapid shift in banks moving to that in the last two years mm -hmm. because they, it's the only way they've been able to adapt with the the um the normal operation interruptions of COVID, you know? So there's the only way they've been able to keep their businesses going and, and, and adapt to a changing world. Um, and uh, yes, if, if a bank wants to do that, come and talk to us and we'll show them before and afterwards uh, with our value benchmark, how, how they can achieve a return on that and what they should be expecting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so Sebastian, there's a big consulting assignment there for you with Temenos, I think, definitely. Um, Ewan Grant says, we've just heard about the potential magic bullet of at-scale data sharing between the big banks. Agreed. Are we over, and he also says, are we, are we overusing the word data? Should we not add ideas feeding the data and derive from it? Which is a reasonable point. It's about um, trying to derive some intelligence from these data flows that we're, we're looking at, ways of investigating it, which makes me think, you know, does, does artificial intelligence and machine learning have something to, to say about, about this, Raisa? What do you think? Are, are banks underusing AI and ML in the, in the financial crime compliance area? Um, great point. Um, yes, the better quality data you have, the more you can do with it, right? Um, so from our perspective, the purpose that we serve is KYC. So we help the banks verify the identity of the person and make sure that the person they're doing business with is the same person that's identifying themselves. So yes, we have seen a major um, shift in regulations where uh, AI and machine learning are being allowed in the digital KYC process. Uh, working with ID now, we are a German company, which are now who is which is now a European company. We've been able to expand um, with new partners in France and in Germany. And what we've seen um, from a regulatory perspective is that um, 
there are different national regulations on how you can use a digital KYC process. Uh, some allow only a video process, others allow an automated solution where AI is uh, the, the substantial technology that's in the uh, process. So this shift has allowed us to build our products on a platform. So we have um, different products for different uh, regulations across the countries and the AI has significantly um, been able to help us with fraud detection. For example, um, there are security requirements where an automated solution has to produce um, a false acceptance rate uh, at a certain percentage. And our products have been able to exceed those um, numbers. And so yes, AI and ML can make a big difference. Uh, I'm talking about the KYC part. Obviously, there are a, um, artificial intelligence tools in um, the other processes for monitoring and screening and the um, false uh, positive reporting. So that that's something I can't really speak to, but for KYC, yes, it does make a big difference. Mm -hmm. um, we're into our last three or four minutes now. Um, so it might just might be interesting just to give everyone listening something to 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 take away with them. Um, and that's something might be what you think is the it, it is the best way forward in this area. I think we are agreed that the present system isn't working brilliantly, even if you don't think it's working as badly as I outlined at the outset so what do you think we should this is my final question to each of you and i'd be interested in each of your thoughts on it what 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 concrete steps do you think we could take to make things um to make get better outcomes rito perhaps you could you could kick us off on that is it ai is it ml is it digital identities what is it i think that the primary idea is just not to think in tools it's to think in process to look overall how it gets better and then to break it down in tools. You and Grant's point about ideas are more important than than process or data. Yeah. Bertrand, what's your what's your thinking? What's the what's the idea you'd like the audience to carry away? Well, to me, I think uh, uh, standards and regulation is uh, a very uh, limiting factor at the moment because of our municipal jurisdiction having to comply with different regulation is very complicated. So having some form of standardization on both the data and the regulation will be a nice way forward to put in place the, autom the required autom automation that will then lower the cost by everyone. Mm -hmm. you, you've heard, think harder. Um, let's have less uh, differentiation in, in regulation, more standardized regulation. What would be your idea? Please tell me it's digital identity. I'd love you to say that. <laughs> Digital identity is definitely um, something in the future. There, there's a long way to go there before we have that framework um, finished. And, and the European Commission it has a very ambitious project in a, in a short timeline there. So I agree with that. I think what I would add um, is that we shouldn't have compliance just for compliance sake. That, that, that defeats the purpose and, and the fraudsters will win that way. I think as we establish more of these frameworks, whether it is the digital identity um, or just uh, other types of technology that's out there for KYC, we have to have better communication between the private sector and uh, the public sector, between regulators and relying parties, vendors like ourselves. We try to be very involved on that scale. So I think that definitely needs to continue. Mm -hmm. 
Thank you. So last word from, from you, David, before we before we sign off. You've, you've heard, let's think harder, let's have standards, let's have better frameworks, digital ID included in that list of frameworks. What would be your solution for the, the next concrete step that we should take forward in financial crime compliance to get better outcomes? Make compliance a profit centre rather than a cost centre. Be cured overnight. Well, we're certainly not getting a, a very good return on the investment right now, are we? No, the because process, the process will have to change. If we're getting returns of minus 450% Precisely. in banking, right? It's a long way to go to turn it into a profit center. But if you turn it into a business enablement function that lowers the risk of doing business, therefore you can undercut your competitors, you can grow your business, you make money. Bingo, it's a profit center. With some regulatory help, of course. <laughs> okay. Well, that's a nice, a, a nice idea to to end on. Thank you for that, uh, David. We, we we move from minus four hundred and fifty percent to plus four hundred and fifty percent in a very short order. Uh, sadly, that's where we must stop. I'd like to thank uh, our panelists, um, Reyes Manning Amata from ID Now, uh, Bertrand Fong from uh, Secretarium, uh, Rita Grunenfelder, and of course David Hallam from uh, from Temos. And thank you also to you, the members of our audience, for your questions uh, and your comments. But for now, it's goodbye from the five of us. Goodbye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye.